Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, some interesting news out of Congressional Budget Office. They've downsized their projections and how much Obamacare will cost over those first five years of the program. And the nonpartisan CBO issued its 10-year budget projections, which includes analysis of the cost of Obamacare. Now, those original projections were that it would cost the government roughly $760 billion over five years, and that number has been lowered to roughly $520 billion, or a 20% reduction. Wow. And it's due in part to lower projections of the number of Americans seeking insurance on the exchanges, and therefore fewer Americans requiring government subsidies. And about two dozen states have refused to expand Medicaid, so there have been some upfront cost savings in that sector as well. But things are changing on that front as well, Mark. Some two dozen states have chosen not to expand Medicaid, which would provide health coverage to more of their vulnerable populations, folks who live near or under the poverty line. We're seeing a changing of the tune in a number of traditionally conservative states as they find some ways to work with it. Absolutely. And one of those uh, states that worked uh, with the Obama administration is Indiana. Their governor, Mike Pence, has worked out a deal with the Obama administration to expand Medicaid in the Hoosier state that might appeal to other red states. Some 350,000 Indiana residents will be able to gain coverage under expanded Medicaid with some caveats. They'll have more financial responsibility for cost-sharing funds will also be raised on the cigarette tax, and hospitals will kick in as well. And healthy behaviors will be encouraged through cost-saving incentives. It's an interesting approach. And the trend is continuing. Several states are expected to debate Medicaid expansion in the coming months, including Florida, uh, which has a large uninsured population, Tennessee, Wyoming, Utah, and Montana. So a very interesting shift underway, and I might say that we predicted this would happen. And uh, to see uh, what such coverage has done for Americans who have already received it, we can look to a recent report by the Nonpartisan Commonwealth Fund, which just released a biennial report on health insurance coverage in America, and the evidence is pretty clear, Margaret. Those who have gained coverage either through uh, online insurance marketplaces or through Medicaid expansions are gaining not only peace of mind, but access to care as well. I was interested to see uh, that the millennials, which we didn't think mm-hmm. were ever going to sign right. up for anything, <laughs> uh, signed up in large number. Sarah Collins is the lead author on the report. She's the vice president of health coverage and access at the Commonwealth Fund. She's joining us today, and she'll break down the report. But the bottom line, more Americans have gained affordable coverage. More Americans are using their coverage to access preventive and other services, and they are less likely to avoid visits to providers than ever before. We'll also hear from Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, who always is on the hunt for misstatements made about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows and see all of our terrific guests from over the years by going to chcradio.com. And always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or at CHC Radio on Twitter. We love hearing from you. And we'll get to our interview with Sarah Collins from the Commonwealth Fund in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. 20% less. That's the revised estimate from the Congressional Budget Office on what the actual cost to American taxpayers will be over the course of the next five years to provide health insurance for millions of previously uninsured Americans. 
The reason? Fewer states expanding Medicaid than originally expected, leaving millions of Americans off the insurance rolls, and a lower projection of those Americans buying coverage on the exchanges and thus qualifying for subsidies. Meanwhile, open enrollment ends February 15th. While the exchanges have been running smoothly on both the state and federal levels, there's not quite as much urgency for signing up this time around. Analysts expect the pace to pick up as we wind down to February 15th. And by the end of the second open enrollment, more than 20 million Americans, most of whom were previously uninsured, will have found some kind of coverage. And what about the Supreme Court? The March 4th hearing looms on insurance questions whether the language of the ACA intended to provide tax subsidies for residents in the states relying on the federal exchange, 37 of them so far. If the high court decides in favor of the challenge, it could undermine the extremely popular aspect of the law that makes coverage affordable for millions of Americans. 87% of those who purchase insurance on those exchanges receive some kind of tax subsidy. A recent poll showed a majority of Americans feel if the Supreme Court decides against supporting the subsidy, Congress should act to restore the benefit. The Supreme Court decision expected in June. Meanwhile, diabetes, once a disease of the middle-aged and senior population, is creeping into the world of young invincibles. A study out of Vancouver found type 2 diabetes is about to overtake type 1 diabetes in folks under 30. Type 1, the type most found in young people. Type 2 diabetes is by and large a diet and behavior-related condition brought on in older years. And e-cigarettes and your health. A recent study by the Journal of the American Medical Association found that vaping or e-cigs have much higher concentrations of formaldehyde and other toxins than found in cigarettes. California, just one state now getting on the bandwagon to discourage vaping, especially among the youth population. A recent survey showed in the past month, 17% of high school students had puffed on e-cigarettes boasting flavors like bubblegum and cotton candy. One person becomes hooked on nicotine. It's estimated they'll spend $1.5 million just buying cigarettes alone. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with economist Sarah Collins, Ph.D., vice president of healthcare coverage and access at the Commonwealth Fund, a private foundation promoting a high-functioning healthcare system. Ms. Collins has led the fund's national program on health insurance since 2005, a prolific writer and analyst of health policy. Ms. Collins served as associate editor at U.S. News & World Report and served as a senior economist at Health Economic Research. She earned her undergraduate degree in economics from Washington University. University and her PhD from George Washington University. Sarah, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Well, so much has changed over the last couple of years. Uh, we're currently in the second year of enrollment of, under the Affordable Care Act, and uh, more than 20 million Americans who were previously uninsured are expected to have signed up for coverage. And that really dovetails with the Commonwealth Fund's recently released report on health insurance coverage in America. Uh, And it's the first time since you started collecting this data that there's been a decline in the number of uninsured Americans. Can you tell our listeners more about your report's findings and how significant a change this really is? So the Commonwealth Fund has been conducting the biennial health insurance survey since 2001, and we ask adults ages 19 to 64 about their health insurance coverage. And then we ask them several related questions about their ability to get health care despite the cost. 
So in, in our latest survey, which we fielded in the second half of, of 2014, so it's the first year of the Affordable Care Act's major coverage expansions going into, we found that the number of adults um, who lack health insurance declined from an estimated 37 million people in 2010, or about 20% of the population, to 29 million people in 2014, or about 16% of that population. The decline in 2014 is the first statistically significant decline measured by the survey since it began um, in 2001. And we are seeing, at least in this survey, that the uninsured rate is at its lowest level since 2003. They range um, from about a 7 to 10 million person decline in the numbers of uninsured. Some groups that have particularly benefited um, from the expansions, the uninsured rate among young adults um, ages 19 to 34 has declined sharply um, from about 27% in 2010 to 19% in 2014. And this is the lowest uninsured rate among young adults um, since 2001. And there are also striking declines among low-income adults. Um, the rate of uninsurance among people with incomes below 47000 uh, for a family of four dropped from 36% in 2010 to 24% in 2014. So it's now, the uninsured rate in this income group is now lower than it was um, in 2001. So you can really see the effects of those coverage expansions helping people who were at the highest risk of being uninsured, people who had low and moderate incomes and, uh, and young adults. As the Commonwealth Fund has always been great at identifying and writing about, it's not just about coverage, right? Even with coverage, people uh, sometimes don't access care, let alone quality care that improves health outcomes. But your report is showing a promising trend beyond just coverage. Uh, People are actually utilizing care in ways that they may not have been able to in the past, particularly among young and poor Americans. And, you know, we could hypothesize on those reasons, but let's ask you as the expert, elaborate on the significance of those findings for us. Sure. So we looked at this question about whether people were using their health plans in a prior survey that we did just after the end of the first open enrollment period. And we asked people who had new coverage, either new Medicaid coverage or marketplace coverage, and we asked whether or not they've used their new plans to go see a doctor or a hospital or pay for prescription drugs. And about 60% said they had used their plans to go to, go to a doctor or a hospital or pay for prescription drugs. So, so I thought that was pretty striking, that people were actually already using their plans, um, given that we were only in the first part of, of 2014. And then we asked whether or not they would have been able to access or afford this care prior to getting their new health insurance. And about 62% said they would not have been able to get the care that they got um, with their new health plans. And this is consistent with what we know about um, the, the newly insured. About 60% were uninsured prior to getting their new health coverage. And about 75% of people who were uninsured when they got care and had used their new coverage said they wouldn't have been able to get this care prior to getting their new health insurance. So this has really been a dramatic change for many people who were uninsured for, for long periods of time. But we're also finding that people who have health insurance um, are getting health care that they wouldn't have gotten in the past. And and that is that is likely because of people who had individual market plans that didn't cover the full set of benefits that they get right. now under the Affordable right. Care Act. And so, so we are seeing improvements um, in both um, uninsured and insured people. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court ruling had a big impact uh, in terms of Medicaid. It allowed 
uh, states to opt in to Medicaid or not. And we saw a lot of states who simply didn't. It may have been political reasons or for whatever reason they, they decided not to. But what, what did your survey find in those states that chose not to expand Medicaid to the more vulnerable populations? What impact has that decision had on the lives of the uninsured of those still priced out of the health care system? We looked at adults who had incomes under 100% of poverty um, in those states um, compared to states that had expanded their Medicaid programs. Um, so people with incomes under 100% of poverty are not eligible for either the Medicaid expansion or um, for subsidized private plans through the marketplaces. And the uninsured rate of people who had incomes under 100% of poverty in those 24 states that had not expanded their programs was substantially higher, about 44% uninsured under 100% of poverty compared to 30% in states that had expanded their programs. So whether states running their own marketplaces or whether or not they're expanding their Medicaid programs. And what we find is that the Medicaid expansion is much, much more important. And it kind of begs a question that came up often uh, in the debates leading up to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. When they had that card and went out in search of care, would they be able to find somebody to provide that care? Uh, what, what was your finding there when you talked to people? Was that part of the domain of questions that you asked? We asked people whether or not they tried to find a new primary care physician, um, and then we asked how long they had to wait to get an appointment. And what we find, people who were newly covered were largely similar to wait times among the broader insured population. But we still have this trend towards increased cost sharing and high deductibles. How has that higher cost sharing burden impacted the American consumer overall? What are you seeing there? The larger trend in U.S. health insurance coverage, both in employer plans and in the individual market, is the shift of risk from insurers, from employers, onto employees and people who are enrolled in health insurance plans. And that's really occurring through the use of higher deductibles. In 2003, about 54% of people who had employer-based policies had a plan with a deductible, and that increased to 81%. Um, by 2013. And the size of the deductible also grew tremendously over that period, or an increase of 146%. So what people are having to spend out of pocket when they go to the doctor has just increased um, Mm -hmm. substantially over time. And what we find, about 40% of adults delayed getting needed care because of the cost. We're speaking today with economist Sarah Collins, Ph.D., Vice President of Healthcare Coverage and Access at the Commonwealth Fund. Ms. Collins has led the fund's national program on health insurance uh, since 2005. Sarah, the mission of the Commonwealth Fund is to promote high-performing health systems, and it's no longer about access. The, the question is access to what? And so I want to talk a little bit about quality of care uh, in America. We still rank poorly in this country in terms of outcomes compared to other industrialized nations. And how have our measures on outcome improved since the passage of the health care law? So about half of the law was really devoted to improving quality and lowering the rate of growth in health care costs. Those provisions have received much less attention mm-hmm. um, than the insurance reforms. But the reforms include testing alternative ways of paying for health services, as well as new ways of organizing healthcare providers to provide coordinated care. These are mostly focused on the Medicare program, 
And while there have been no major changes in national performance um, as a result of these changes, there have been really been some notable improvements. From 2012 to 2013, um, Medicare hospital readmissions decreased by nearly 10%. Mm. Those are readmissions. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this is likely helped by Medicare's hospital readmissions um, reduction program, which was implemented under the Affordable Care Act. Medicare is a hugely influential program in the country mm-hmm. um, because right. of the large number of people who are covered by it. And so it has major repercussions throughout the delivery system. So we are seeing major changes in how health care is delivered um, in the United States and how providers are being paid. And those changes are just underway and, and ongoing. Well, I believe the Congressional Budget Office just released a report suggesting that the projected cost of paying for health insurance over the next five years is about 20% lower than originally projected. Tell us more about some of the findings in both your report and the CBOs that really suggest improvement in the cost containment arena, specifically around our having been able to insure so many more Americans under the Affordable Care Act. Yes. No, I think that's an extraordinary finding that the projected spending uh, over the next decade, as you mentioned, 2011 to 2020, has fallen by $600 billion um, since 2010. And this is despite an additional $1 trillion in spending for premium tax credits and expanded Hmm. Medicaid um, to cover a projected 27 Mm -hmm. million more people. So even despite these big coverage expansions, we're seeing lower rates of of cost growth. Just looking over our shoulders at what we've seen, um, 2013 national health care costs are estimated to have increased about 3.6% annually. And this was the fifth consecutive year of spending growth that was below 4%. The other place that we're seeing, and you mentioned the study that we just released um, at the fund by Mike McHugh and Mark Hall on what's driving the large premium increases that health plans all have to submit their large increases in premiums, um, 10% or or more, to rate review now. That's a provision Mm -hmm. of the Affordable Mm -hmm. Care Act. And of those insurers that did have premium increases of more than 10%, the major factor driving those increases was the underlying rate of growth in medical costs. So the fact that we're seeing a slowdown in healthcare costs um, is translating into slower premium growth. We we looked at growth in premiums and deductibles among in employer-based plans over 2003 to 2013, and what we found nationally and in 31 states, the annual rate of growth in premiums um, dropped to a slower rate of growth, um, and this happened in the three years following the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. So it's really important that we are able to achieve slower rate of growth in health care costs, and we there are various theories about why this is happening, um, partly deriving from some of the health reforms in the Affordable Care Act, and this broader reorganization of care that we're seeing in the delivery in the delivery system. The recession probably also had something to do with that. Um, and whether or not people are paying more out of pocket for their deductibles, how much mm-hmm. is that um, contributing to just people using less care, um, which is not necessarily a good mm-hmm. thing. Um, but we're um, it's going to be um, important to track these trends um, over time and understand what's driving the slowdown. The other thing I would mention here that's so important too, you know, we're seeing declines in, in medical, the rate of growth in medical inflation um, and the rate of growth in premiums. 
But what's what's hurting families is that their incomes haven't grown. So mm-hmm. even though we're seeing a decline in the rate of growth in healthcare costs, incomes are also growing really slowly. So even more slowly than than the rate of growth in healthcare costs. So what people spend as a share of their income um, continues to climb. So it'd be very important um, that incomes also um, climb over the next few years, so people can keep pace um, with what they have to spend on healthcare. Yeah, and that's sort of the horns of the dilemma. We have always good news about uh, things that are happening, the reduction in cost, and uh, yet, on the other hand, concern about uh, income. We have the issue of maybe by next year, 25 million Americans covered under the Affordable Care Act, and yet probably 20 million left. I'm always daunted by, my God, didn't we make a lot of progress? And you hear, hear a number like that. A lot of people who are not legally present in the country are also uh, out there who aren't covered. The Obviously, we talked earlier about the Medicaid uh, states, uh, the states who haven't uh, opted into the Medicaid uh, expansion program. Uh, so what are your predictions about uh, the populations remaining? Any initiatives you think they can really move the dial in getting more of those people enrolled in? Or are we going to have this sort of structural problem that we thought the Affordable Care Act would handle with you know, tens of millions of Americans still uncovered? So I think that the, the Medicaid expansion is, is one of the most important um, pieces of that puzzle. Um, and we're with, with the addition of Indiana this week, 28 states in the district have expanded eligibility for their programs. Um, and about six states are in serious discussions um, right now to expand eligibility for their um, programs. But that leaves about 16 states, and two of them are very large, um, Texas and Florida, uh, who have not yet expanded eligibility for the Medicaid programs, and there, there isn't a lot of discussion happening um, yet in those, um, in those states. We're seeing huge, huge increases in Medicaid enrollment um, despite, despite um, the, the slow take-up by states, so about 10 million people newly enrolled um, in Medicaid, estimated 10 million since the, um, since the, since 2000, 2014, um, but, um, but that will continue to be a major, a major issue. Um, enrollment um, has gone extremely well in the marketplaces um, this this open enrollment period and probably um, set to at least um, exceed um, the estimates that the administration put out this year about nine nine million people um, expected to be covered through the through the marketplaces CBO's estimates are a little bit are a little bit higher um, so as um, um, and, and both the Congressional Budget Office and um, the Health Department of Health and Human Services are projecting, you know, a gradual rollout of the provisions that occurs over a period of years. The Congressional Budget Office estimate is a little bit shorter time span than the federal government's estimate, which which looks at about a five-year ramp-up period. So we'll continue to see that that the number of people insured through the marketplaces and the number of insur- people insured through Medicaid um, climb um, over time. But really, the um, in addition to the um, states not expanding the Medicaid programs, the, the, the single biggest threat to coverage um, improvements is the um, case now before the Supreme Court, um, King versus Burwell, which challenges the IRS rule that federal subsidies are available in all 50 states, not just those that are running their own marketplaces. Um, if the Supreme Court were to rule in favor of the plaintiffs, an estimated 9.3 million people might lose their tax credits, um, their premium tax credits in 2016. So most people who 
get coverage through the marketplaces right now are eligible for tax credits. Um, 34 states um, have federal, um, federally operated marketplaces. About 9.3 million people are projected to lose their tax credits um, as a result. Um, the Urban Institute estimates that of those, about 6.3 million um, would likely become uninsured because they couldn't afford their, mm-hmm. their health insurance without that. And that would have, even as, as that group of people left the marketplaces in those states, um, premiums would, would jump up mm-hmm. um, in those states, which means that even people who don't have um, tax credits would, would begin to find their, their, their health care coverage um, unaffordable. So about... 1.2 million additional um, people would would likely become un, uninsured. Um, so that's about um, 7.5 million people would become uninsured um, um, as a result of the decision. So this is this is a major um, mm-hmm. issue um, and a big a big concern. Mm-hmm. We've been speaking today with economist Sarah Collins, vice president of healthcare coverage and access at the Commonwealth Fund, a private foundation that promotes a high functioning healthcare system. You can learn more about Sarah's work and the broad scope of work at the Commonwealth Fund by going to commonwealthfund.org. And you can follow Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Collins. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you so much for having me. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? In his State of the Union address, President Obama said that, quote, more of our people are insured than ever before. That's based on an administration analysis that compares the second quarter of 2014 to years past. We don't have the full 2014 numbers yet. The White House's Council of Economic Advisors used data from the National Center for Health Statistics to estimate that the uninsured rate is at or near the lowest level in five decades. The data go back to 1963. The Council of Economic Advisors compares the percentage without health insurance for the second quarter of 2014, that's 11.3 percent, to yearly figures from the past. That's the lowest rate, but only 0.1 percentage points below the rate in 1974, 1978, and 1980. The figure for the first six months of 2014, however, not just the second quarter, is higher at 12.2%. It remains to be seen how the whole year will compare to the past. In fact, if we look at National Center for Health Statistics numbers for those without health insurance under age 65, the first six months of 2014 had a higher percentage of uninsured than 1974, 1978, 1980, and 1982. Obama also said that about 10 million uninsured Americans had gained health coverage in the past year. That figure is supported by a quarterly survey conducted by the Urban Institute. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Mm-hmm. 
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. As the saying goes, music soothes the savage beast. And according to a recent study conducted by Queen's University in Belfast, Ireland, there's some empirical data to back that up. In a first-of-a-kind longitudinal study, children suffering from a variety of behavioral and emotional conditions who were exposed to music therapy in addition to traditional therapies had far better outcomes than those children in a control group that offered traditional therapy without music therapy. Basically, it's about treating children with emotional and behavioral problems with music therapy in addition to normal psychiatric care. It's not a matter of them being given music or choosing music. They actually make music uh, along with the music therapist assisting them. So the idea is for them to express themselves through music. Lead researcher Dr. Sam Porter said there's been anecdotal evidence that music improves mood in children and adolescents as well as adults, but his study revealed just how effective the music therapy was. Our primary outcome was an improvement in communication. There were two very interesting secondary outcomes, levels of depression and levels of self-esteem. And in the secondary outcomes, we find a statistically significant difference between the control group and the intervention group. Dr. Porter says in the group given musical therapy, it showed over time more interaction with their surroundings and a better response to the traditional therapies as well. And, he says, the effects were sustained over time. I mean, that's one of the marvellous things about music therapy, is the things that it's not. There are no side effects. It is not a dangerous therapy to get kids involved, and it is a a productive way of, of getting kids to improve their health. So it is just such a good way and a harmless way of doing things. So it's really satisfying to know that it's also an effective way of doing it. The study was conducted in conjunction with the Northern Ireland Music Therapy Trust, which sees the promising findings as an incentive to incorporate this relatively low-cost, non-invasive therapy into standard protocols as an additional tool to enhance outcomes for the youth population which often suffers negative side effects from powerful medications. A simple, targeted music therapy approach, age-appropriate and showing great efficacy in improving outcomes for young patients with minimal side effects and lasting benefits, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.